0: Hello and welcome to Through the Bible with Les Feldick, an inspirational and informative half hour of insight into the heart of scripture. In addition to teaching the Bible, Les is a full-time rancher, having a down-to-earth practical teaching style that makes the Bible come to life. All programs are available on audio tape, videotape, and in printed form. At the end of the program, there will be an address where you can contact the ministry. And now, here's Les Feldick with today's lesson.
1: Okay, it's good to have everybody in this afternoon, and uh, once again we're going to produce four of these half-hour programs, and uh, for those of you just tuning in maybe for the first time or maybe for the second, we are just an informal Bible study. We are not associated with any particular group, and uh, we've got no axe to grind, and As I've said so often as we've taught these lessons over the years, we're not trying to twist people's arms to come from one group and into another. All we ask is that you get into the book and learn to read it. And as one telephone caller said just early this morning, clear up from International Falls, Minnesota, he said, Les, he said, you have taught me that you can't just read the Bible unless you study it. And uh, I just can't emphasize that, that if you once get a love for the Word, reading it isn't enough. Okay, now, instead of going right on into Galatians, because after all, we finished Second Corinthians in our last taping, and uh, we just get so many requests and comments about our timeline. And, of course, I had experienced that even before we ever went on television, where my local class people would say, well... If you've ever done anything to open up the Bible, it's using the timeline. And so in response to those requests, I just thought we'd digress for at least one program and review once again the timeline and how everything unfolds and how it all fits and how everything rests on that which has gone before. And so consequently, it is hard to understand the the church age and why God is dealing with us the way He is unless we see where it all began. I'll never forget years ago, and I've used it over and over in my Oklahoma classes, and the gentleman involved watches the program and he'll nod his head and smile when I tell about it. But uh, he came up to the ranch one day after I'd been baling hay all day, and I was tired, and it was about 10.30 at night, and he met me and introduced himself and said, Tell me, who in the world is Jesus Christ? Now, at the time, it shook me up. And I thought, how could anybody ask a question like that? But now, some five, six years after that, all I ask is, Why don't more people ask that very question because most people don't know who he is oh they know he was born at bethlehem and they know he went through a crucifixion but to really know who christ is and how he came on the scene too many people haven't got a clue well, that night as we went into our kitchen table, as one person wrote, my, that must be some kitchen table. Well, it is. It's just an old round oak table, but boy, we've led a lot of people to the Lord there. And so we brought him in, put on the coffee pot, and uh, that's what I did. I just started with him with this timeline. And that's why I share it with people. If you want to have an opportunity to get someone interested in the Word of God, learn to use the timeline. It's quite simple. And uh, I'm going to complicate it a little bit today by showing the difference between what the disciples understood and the early Jewish believers understood compared to what you and I now understand as church-age believers because God interrupted his original program for the nation of Israel, and uh, turned to the Gentiles instead. So anyway, I'm going to start so far as the Scriptures are concerned. Honey, go to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll just look at the Abrahamic covenant in a minute, because from the timeline you'll see that if Adam was created at 4,004, and most chronologers are pretty much agreed on that, Then from Adam until the call of Abraham, or Abram, as he was first known in Genesis 12. And now this is where we're going to read a moment. And we have that covenant that God made with Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. So he was a Syrian. That shakes people up. They think Abraham was a Jew. Well, he couldn't have been. The Jews were still unknown. So he was a Syrian. But God made a special covenant with him. And here it is in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord had said, back in chapter 11, unto Abram, get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will, future tense, show thee. And I will, God says, future, I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, I will curse him that curseth thee, and in thee. In other words, through a lineage of people that would come from this man, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, of course, this Abrahamic covenant is given to the man who will be the father now then of a race of people who had never been on the earth before. They came out, of course, Adam and Noah and the three sons and Abram. But God institutes now by His sovereignty a new race or nation of people that we have come to know as Israel. And so the Jews come as a result of this covenant made with this one man. And this covenant promises a nation of people. And implied is that you can't have a nation of people functioning and operating unless they are in their own geographical area, homeland. And so that's implied. Well, again, it's implied that if you have a nation of people and they're in a geographical area, you cannot have law and order. You cannot have an economy unless you have a what? A government. And so those are the three main tenets of the Abrahamic covenant that God will make of this one man a nation of people. He will put them in their own geographical area of land, and then at some future day, he and the person of God in the flesh would be their king. And that, of course, is the promise of the Messiah and the Redeemer. Now, I've got it on the board. I I hope uh, you can read it uh, by way of the camera at least. That with the 2000 BC call of Abraham, and we've got God dealing now for the next 2000 years up to Christ's first advent with Jew only, and of course I always in the past have said with exceptions, but down on this timeline I have called this whole period of time from Abraham until we get out here to the church age when it's interrupted. We call this the time of prophecy, the prophetic program or the Old Testament program. And then we're going to see how it was interrupted. But when I say that it's a a program of prophecy, I want you to turn the page in your Old Testament a minute to chapter 15, Genesis 15. And I always like to make these things as plain as I possibly can. Prophecy, true prophecy, which is telling the future, of course, as we understand in the Old Testament is almost always, maybe not always, but almost always, whenever God made a promise, He put it in a time frame. Now, that's how explicit God is when He can tell the future. He will name the day, and He will name the number of years that will be involved in that particular prophecy. All right, now in Genesis 15... Uh, Abraham has now come along and uh, is ready to begin the uh, physical nature of the land. He's going to have children. The first one, of course, was uh, not according to God's plan, Ishmael. But nevertheless, in Genesis 15, here we have what I'm calling a real example of true prophecy. And that is in verse 13. Genesis 15, verse 13. And he that is the Lord or God said unto Abram, Know of a surety. I like that word surety. You know what that means? Hey, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Know of a surety that thy seed, his offspring, the nation that's going to come from this covenant promise, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. Now, do you see the prophetic element? Your offspring are going to be. So, what is God telling? Something out in the future, see? And so, thy seed shall be, future tense, a stranger in a land that is not theirs. They're not going to be in the promised land. They're going to be someplace else. And, of course, we know it was Egypt. And shall serve them. They're going to go into bondage. Now, here comes the time element, see? And they shall afflict them, or they're going to be afflicted 400 years. You see that? Now God is making a prophecy that this nation coming out of this one man, Abraham, is going to end up in a land that's not theirs, which we now know is Egypt, and they're going to be under slavery, but it's going to cover a period of 400 years. See how... plain that is? Now that's the way prophecy always works. All right, now then according to my timeline, of course, once we come past the first eleven chapters, which is Adam and the Flood and the Tower of Babel, now comes the call of Abraham and the appearance of the nation of Israel. And then we come 500 years after that, we come to Moses and the Exodus experience and the law, and then we have all the rest of the Old Testament writers, the prophets, the Psalms, and everything else, and everything now is prophetically looking forward to and promising what we call the first advent of Christ, in other words, His birth at Bethlehem whence He came to the nation of Israel. All right, now then, just to pick up what I always refer to as the outline of this prophetic or Old Testament program is Psalms chapter 2. And we might as well take the whole first four or five verses because they're short. Why do the heathen... Now, remember in Old Testament language and even in the New, anybody that was not a Jew, born of Isaac and Jacob and the twelve sons... Anyone other than that is either called a Gentile or the goyim, or they're referred to as heathen or uncircumcised. But here the word is heathen. So why do the heathen, the non-Jew, the Gentiles, and the people? So that is now referring to the promised covenant people. And so why do Jew and Gentile alike, all of them, imagine a vain thing? the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers, that is, of Israel, take counsel, what? Together. In other words, even though the book of Acts lays the blame on the nation of Israel for crucifying Christ, yet never forget, Rome carried it out. Pilate was the one who made the decree to crucify him, even though he may not have liked to. And so it was Israel and the Romans together, and they turned against the anointed, which was the other word for Christ and his messiahship, and they said, let us break their bands asunder, that is, the godheads. Let's not let God rule in our affairs, and let us cast away their cords, in other words, God's sovereign rule. They rejected all that because after all, that's what Christ had come to proclaim was that he was the king and ready to set up the kingdom. And Jew and Gentile alike said, no way, we'll not have this man to rule over us. All right, then verse 4. Here was the response of God the Father in heaven. And he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them, the nations of the world and Israel, in derision. And then verse 5. What's the very first word? Then, See, now that's not a specific time of six months or a year, but nevertheless, there would be a definitive time element between His crucifixion and the next event in the timeline or in the Old Testament prophetic program, and that is not a pretty picture. And what is it? His wrath. See? The wrath of God and He will vex them. That is, the nations of the world, and Israel in particular. He will vex them in His sore displeasure. That's the tribulation. Yet, in spite of everything falling in place according to the prophetic program, everything that the prophets have written, yet, the psalmist writes, I have set my King upon the holy hill of zion now what's that that's the kingdom all right so now if i can get back to my top line i hope i can make sense out of this abraham at 2000 for all those years up to his first advent it was primarily not exclusively of course but primarily god dealing only with the nation of israel christ came brought about his three years of earthly ministry preaching and proclaiming who he was only to the nation of israel and they crucified him. He ascended back to glory. Now then, according to Psalms two, the next event would be the wrath and vexation, which would be the seven years of the tribulation, and then Christ would come and yet set up his kingdom. Now that's Psalms chapter two, five, six, and seven, just as plain as you can get. Now, it's obvious then. What's missing? Well, the church age. Not a word in the old testament about the church age. Not a word in the Gospels that God would turn to the Gentiles and call out of them a body of Christ, of Jew and Gent. Not a word. But the Old Testament was only looking forward to this top line. That Christ would come, He would suffer, He would die, He'd be raised from the dead, and then the wrath of God would fall, and then the kingdom would be set up. And you see, it's so obvious. And in fact, now let me show you how obvious it really is that Peter had no concept of anything other than this Old Testament timeline. In Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, and they've been accused, you know, of starting their imbibing a little too early in the morning. And so that by 9 o'clock they were drunken. Well, I don't know how in the world they could accuse someone who was speaking in languages that everybody could understand of being drunken. My experience with drunken people is you can't understand one language, let alone many. But whatever. They were being accused of having been drinking too much new wine. And then in verse 15, Peter's response was... Acts 2 now, verse 15, For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But verse 16, But what you're seeing, see? Now it's implied, of course, what you're seeing is the fulfillment of prophecy. That's what he's saying. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And this is what Joel wrote. And it shall come to pass, as he writes prophecy, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my Spirit. And they shall prophesy. Peter was seeing it. See? It was happening on the day of Pentecost. And then verse 19, Peter should have stopped right there had he known that Israel was going to go into a dispersion and God was going to turn to John. He should have stopped right there. But he didn't. Peter was still hanging tooth and nail on that Old Testament program, my top line, that Israel had to come to a knowledge of their Messiah and then the tribulation could unroll and then they'd have the king and the kingdom. All right, look what he says then. Verse nineteen. He continues to quote Joel, and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned into the darkness, the moon in the blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. Well, what's he talking about? The tribulation. See? And Peter knew that it had to come. But what's the last verse? "...and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved." Now, that's not Paul. That's Peter. And Peter is still on the top timeline. He's in the prophetic program... And all he's talking about here is that the one you crucified has been raised from the dead. He's gone back to glory, according to Psalms 110, verse 1, sitting at the Father's right hand. And yet would come the wrath and vexation. And then, of course, Christ would return and yet set up the kingdom. But Israel rejected it. And so the king couldn't pour out the tribulation wrath. He had to wait in heaven until something else glorious would come to pass. And now, of course, we got to turn a little further in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Now, this is just a quick skimming review, of course. Now, in Acts chapter 9, I want you to jump all the way to verse 15. And here we are at Saul's tremendous conversion on the road to Damascus. This one who detested, hated with a passion the name of Jesus of Nazareth because he could see it as just totally rotting away Judaism, defaming the temple and the law, and so he did everything everything humanly possible to stamp out the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so he thinks he's pretty much covered all his bases in the homeland of Jerusalem and Judea. And so now he has gone to the high priest and gotten permission to even go to Damascus. Now, I read an interesting account of this the other day that I guess I never realized before. Because uh, I've often wondered, how did the Romans allow that? Well, Judaism had a fair amount of clout, even with the Romans. And so the the high priests and the uh, rulers of Israel had enough clout with the Roman government that with a few of the cities of the Middle Eastern Roman Empire, they could actually demand extradition like we do today. In other words, if someone from America uh, commits a horrible crime and they flee to Canada, you know what the law allows? We can prevail on the Canadian government to extradite them back home to America. Well, the Judaizers, the high priests of Israel, had that kind of control over the Roman government that there were certain cities where they could ask for extradition. And so this is what Paul, or Saul and the religious leaders of Israel kick into gear and they say, let us come up to Damascus and bring these renegade Jews who have followed this Jesus of Nazareth and let us deal with him. And of course, Paul rehearses in chapter 26 that what did they do? They threw him into prison. They put him to death. See? All right. Now, as Saul of Tarsus has met the Lord on the road to Damascus, and you all know the account... Here is where you have that tremendous change in the modus operandi of the sovereign God. Verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, that is, Ananias, who was arguing, Oh, we've heard all about this fellow. But he says to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, that opens the door, then, to the Apostle Paul's ministry among the Gentiles. And now we have to drop down to the second line. This is the one where we're concerned with. Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. In Romans 16, verse 25. Let's look at it a minute quickly. My time's going too fast again, but let's see if we can find it. Romans 16:25, 25. And uh, this is the open part of my timeline, then. Romans 16, verse twenty-one. We got it, honey? All right, we got to do this quickly. Now to him, Paul writes, that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. Not Jesus' gospel, not Peter's gospel, but Paul's gospel. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to... The revelation of the what? The mystery. See? And so now for almost 2,000 years, we haven't been in the prophetic program. We are in the age of grace, which is the revelation of the mysteries. Things that were kept secret back here in the Old Testament. There was no concept of Gentiles being brought into a relationship with the Almighty God. But when the church is complete, and it can be taken out of the way in what we call the rapture, then you see this just backs right up to there and the prophetic program will go right on and will yet be completed. Now all you have to do is look at the situation. Israel is back in the land like she was at the time of Christ's first coming. They'll soon have their temple and they'll go back under Judaism and the law and temple worship. The revived Roman Empire is already on the scene. The European community is just about jot and tittle complete. And so everything is now falling into place that it'll be just like it was at the time of Christ's first advent. Oh, granted, technology and everything has exploded, but yet it is all for the sole purpose of bringing about the end-time scenario for that second coming of Christ to the nation of Israel.
0: Thank you for joining us again for Through the Bible with Les Felding. If you'd like to order audio tapes, videos, or any of our printed material, you may do so by writing Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. That's Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552. Or you can call us toll-free if you'd like at 1-800-369-7856. That's one 1- Remember, this is a faith ministry and your participation with us is greatly appreciated. Again, our address is Les Feldick Ministries, Route 1, Box 760, Kenta, Oklahoma, 74552 and our phone is 1-800-369-7856 Thanks again for listening and please join us next time for Through the Bible,